Good morning. morning. Scripture reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. And it reads as follows. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham? What am I about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached them and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away? and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five, less than 50? Will you destroy destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke up to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of the 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned to his home. This is God's words. You may be seated. You were at the men's retreat yesterday. You were really blessed. I called it the, the retreat. It was, it, it's act, actually was in town, so it was a men's event. The, uh, the food on Friday night, uh, believe it or not, I was only able to eat about half of what was on my plate. It was, it was awesome, and it was delicious, and, and it was huge. And then uh, afterwards, uh, we got to spend some time uh, uh, listening to, to, to Bean and Bailey, and uh, uh, I, I didn't know what, I had never heard of them. Uh, well, I'd heard of them, but I'd never heard them before. They, they were hysterical. We just had a great time. And then the, uh, the next morning, uh, the men's committee that had put together this event 
had stations all through this auditorium and in the communion preparation room and out in the family room. And the men of this congregation that were a part of that event spent a couple of hours that morning just being in this room going from station to station and, and being prompted to pray about our church, to pray about their own hearts, to pray about their wives, to pray about their, their children, to, uh, to pray about the greatness of God's grace. And this was just a, an incredibly holy place yesterday. And I'm going to say thank you to Grant Cobb and to all of the guys that were a part of that, that, uh, that men's ministry that put that together. You guys did a great job. Thank you so much. A guy that just uh, read scripture for Keith Mayberry. I mean, that was a show during the, the Bean and Bailey thing. We were sitting behind him and he and his twin brother, boy, they were laughing. And it was absolutely an incredible way to get to know a brother. So it was a, it was a great morning. Uh, we are going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's going to be a great lesson. Let's pray and ask God to bless us. Father, you're so good to us. You really are. And you're good to us right in front of our eyes, and you're good to us when we sleep. You're good to us, Father, when our minds are distracted and elsewhere and our focus is in other places, but you are continually in our presence, Father, drawing us to you. And you do it through your nature, you do it through your spirit, through your word, through your blessings, so many ways that you do it, Father, but you've done it this morning also through the singing as we've lifted up our voices to you. Thank you, Father, for the greatness of the blessing of praise where we not only, Father, center you in our life as the, the supreme value of all the universe, but we're encouraged to know that we're not alone, that we're part of something bigger than just ourselves, this, this, this life of faith and this life of, of walking in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth. And as we get ready, Father, to fill our hearts and minds and soul again with your word, we're asking you to bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear in such a way, Father, that we're transformed even by a story that is horrible. But give us these things, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Even though the majority of the words that we're going to be looking at this morning in this really, really large text deal with Sodom and Gomorrah, we're also going to be introduced into at least three of the great Bible doctrines that are found in the Bible. The first one, if you want to write them down on your outline, the first one is justice. A definition of justice is getting what you deserve. When I was growing up, it was pretty well known what it meant to be an apture, how to live as an apture. And if I or my brothers ever transgressed the law of living like an apture, we could expect that there was going to be some justice that was going to be dispensed. And, and sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, that involved a lecture. Sometimes it involved some kind of corporal punishment when we were smaller. But justice is getting what we deserve. And you know the really funny thing about my brothers and I, when we, when we knew that we had done something wrong, we didn't try to argue with the law. We knew the law. We never said, you know, Dad, telling the truth is just a little overrated. I mean, we just never, we never fought it that way. We just, you know, we went to the next word, which was, is mercy. Where justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And so while dad, especially when we were young, he might, you know, give us, uh, give us a spanking. We were always crying out for mercy, you know, give us what we don't deserve, you know. And so we got justice and we got mercy. Those are two big ones in the Bible. The third one that's usually grouped with it is grace. Where justice is getting what you deserve and mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. 
That's grace. Now again, although most of the portion, the words on this passage that we're going to be looking at at the end of chapter 18 and all of chapter 19 deals with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is God's mercy that takes center stage, believe it or not. And thinking about God in terms of mercy is one of the oldest ways, biblically speaking, to think about God. Think of Psalm 25 and verse 6. It's up here on the screen. Say it with me. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Let's say that again. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. One of the oldest ways that we are taught to think about God is that He is merciful. Now, the title of this sermon, which is The Appalling Strangeness, actually comes from, from a secular book. Uh, a fellow by the name of Graham Greene, who lived in the, uh, the 20th century, wrote a lot of books, a lot of them with a religious theme, wrote a book entitled Brighton Rock. Many of you may have, have read the book, but there's a part of the book, uh, sort of past the middle section of the book, where there's this old fellow that's telling uh, a, sort of a morality tale to a waitress by the name of Rose, and he gets to the place where he's trying to get Rose to understand about God's mercy. And he says, You can't conceive, my dear child, nor can I or anyone, the appalling strangeness, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. The appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. That word appalling really kind of an interesting word comes from a, a French word, apalir, which means to fade or to, or to turn white or, or, or to, uh, to, to, to turn pale. And this is kind of describes what happens to you when you see something or you observe something that just stops you in your tracks. It gets a hold of you, it stops you in your tracks, and it affects you physically. Uh, sometime back, I, I received some, some unexpected news, and it wasn't real positive news. I received some 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 news that, um, that 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 stopped me in my tracks, and sometime later, as the teller of that news was, we were conversing about it later on. The the teller of the news said, "You know, when I was giving you the news, I could just see the blood drain from your face." It's not always negative, but it's it's something that just stops you in your tracks until you're able to get your head around it. And that's the description, the, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God that we see in, in this passage in Genesis, the end of Genesis 18 and all of Genesis 19. And what we're going to do is we're going to use those three words, justice, mercy, and grace, to be the outline through which we walk through this text. So, again, the center of our thoughts this morning is going to come from what is probably the first recorded extended prayer, this, this long prayer that God and Abraham are having together. And it's a little bit startling when you think about it, this, this conversation that Keith just read for us. It seems like God and Abraham are haggling over the price of cattle. But to understand it fully, what's going on at the end of chapter 18, you have to see what's happening in chapter 19 with Sodom. And that's where we begin with the word justice. The story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is among the most famous or infamous best-known stories in the Bible. As you read in chapter 18, and it really all goes all the way back to chapter 13 and even earlier, I mean, the, the, the reputation of Sodom is horrible. And the outcry against the city of Sodom by the people that are being abused by the citizenry of that city is so great that it comes to the ear of God, and God is going to find out about it. He's not going to ignore it. And those two angels that had accompanied God to the tent of Abraham at the great trees of Mamre in the beginning of chapter 18, those two angels are, 
are, are heading towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And at chapter 19, verse 1, we read that they arrive there right as the sun is starting to go down, and it's the end of the day. It's the beginning of the evening. Now Lot, the nephew of Abraham, as you remember, he has decided in chapter 13 of Genesis that he's going to, to, to move his entourage close to Sodom. That's where the land is good. That's where the land is beautiful. That's where he wants to move. By the time you get to chapter 14, we read that he is now living in the city of Sodom. When we get to chapter 19, he's now in the city gates of Sodom, which means that at some point he has proven himself to be a significant or a leading citizen of that city. And he sees these two men. He doesn't know that they're angels, at least at that point. He sees these two men that are coming towards him while he's sitting in the city gates. And he implores them this, to turn aside and to spend the night in my house so that you can get up early in the morning and split. Well, the, the angels don't want to do that. But Lot is pretty adamant about it because Ad, uh, Lot knows, the reason he's adamant that they not spend the night in that town square is he does not want them to have any contact with the people, the citizens of Sodom. He knows the kind of city that he's living in and because he's adamant and because he's really on top of trying to get them to come, even though they say no, they begin to acquiesce and they go into his house and they don't spend the night in the town square and they have dinner together and then we read in verse 4 that before they went to bed, all the men, all, all the men, which the definition of all is everyone, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both the young in the Hebrew it says, the youngest lads to the elders, those that are old, they surround the house of Lot. And they begin to call out to Lot that he needs to bring those two fellows out. And what they want to do is they want to commit a vicious public sexual act on these men. Now we're going to stop right there for a second and let's deal with a couple of issues that, that we encounter when we read Genesis chapter 19 and and discuss you know sort of the, the the issues part of the larger modern western world issue number one most folks have a real issue with the destruction of sodom and gomorrah people in the in the west will say things like i don't believe in a god of judgment i don't believe in a god of punishment i believe in a god of love i believe in a god of mercy i don't believe in a kind of god that is going to do that to a city reminds me some years ago when I was living in another state and ministering with another church I got a phone call one night that there was a domestic dispute that was taking place at a home of one of the daughters and granddaughters of members of our church family to ask if I would go over and help sort things out I get there about the time that the police are handcuffing the 17 year old daughter putting her in a the police car to take her away and mom is is just distraught and I'm, I'm starting to comfort her and talk to her about it and she just goes I, I just can't believe that this has happened I just can't believe but this this is a woman that had been negligent of that girl she had been emotionally abusive she had been absentee she had just she had treated this girl like trash and finally this girl had gotten old enough that she was going to say what she thought and she did and her mother didn't like it and it escalated in something physical which was absolutely wrong but everybody knew that this woman was just struggling to be a decent human being let alone a mom and she said, I just can't believe this is happening. And I just, I don't know why I said it, but I just said, you know, it's just one of the tough things about living in the world as it is, is that sometimes it's just the consequences of our actions. We just, it's just the consequences. And she looked at me and she said, I don't believe in a God of consequences. I believe in a God of love. And that 
that story is, is just pretty typical of a lot of the reactions that people have to a story like this. The bottom line about Sodom is this. If, if God hears the outcry against this city and does not judge, then how in the world is he merciful? How is he merciful? Sodom is beating people into the ground. Sodom is a vicious city. Sodom is, is a ferociously angry, cruel place, and God is going to put a stop to it. And these judgment events in the Bible are there for a reason. Every time we read about one of these judgment events in the Bible, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, what we are being reminded of is that God one day is going to bring a hard and complete and abrupt stop to the evil that's in the world. And God's judgment against evil is an act of mercy. Issue number two. God destroyed these cities because of homosexuality. But notice what the text says. All the men of the city, from every part of the city, both the young lads and the older gentlemen, show up at Lot's home. Which, does that mean that 100% of the men of the city were homosexual? Highly unlikely. I agree with one of the things that Rick Marr said when he was here during our Insight Seminar and was actually kind of walking us through this text. He said, you know, if, if a town, this town, thought that the visitors were a danger, they would grab them, they would drag them to the city square and rape them in order to emasculate them, to demean them, to, to subjugate them. And the message in doing that was don't mess with Sodom. And when you think about it, if the men were homosexual, then why does Lot offer his daughters to them? That doesn't make sense. No, this is, this is a homosexual act that's being perpetrated or wanting to be perpetrated on these men, but it's not an act of homosexuality. This is about inhumanity and, and cruelty. It's about being ferocious. It's about being vicious to other human beings. And that was the reality not only of Sodom but also of Gomorrah. It was a vicious place according to the biblical references. In Isaiah chapter 3, it is associated with oppression. There's no justice in this place. People are being beaten to the ground. They're being ground into the dust. In Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah describes a completely disordered and irresponsible society when it came to living, not just living with each other, but living in the world. And then Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 49, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. This is Ezekiel speaking. She and her daughters were arrogant, meaning that they were, they were incredibly prideful. They were not just proud of what they achieved, but they were prideful in a sense that it became oppressive to other people. They were overfed, just this excessive misuse of, of, of food and unconcerned about other people. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and they did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Christopher Wright. He's written a, a really good book called The Old Testament Ethics for the People of God and he writes regarding this outcry. He says the word and, and the Hebrew word for outcry is tsa'aka is virtually a technical term in the Old Testament for the cries of those who are suffering from oppression and cruelty and injustice. It is the word used of Abel's blood crying out against his murderer. 
That's the kind of town that these angels have gone to and that Lot is living in the middle of. And you know the rest of the story. Lot wants to spare the men from being dragged out into the town square where all of this horrible stuff, vicious stuff is going to happen to him. And so he offers his two daughters who have never known a man. You know, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 describes Lot as a righteous man distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless in the city around him. But there's no way to explain the incredible wrong he has done in offering these daughters. And all this does is just incense the men of Sodom against him. Who are you to judge us? Get out of our way. That's what they say to him. They tell him to get out of the way, and they are about to physically grab these two men that are really angels, and that's when the angels strike the men near the door blind, giving them time to escape. And that city is completely and violently and exhaustively and utterly destroyed. We read, beginning in verse 24, that the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. That's just a way of saying that it was scorched. It it was so awful that it was scorched. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It's a rough story at so many different levels, but believe it or not, it's in this story that we also see the appalling strangeness of God's mercy. The day before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham is walking with the three visitors, God and the two angels who have come to him at his tents. His entourage is set up in the tents and the the camp is set up near the great trees of Mamre. And God, uh, as they're walking away, God invites Abraham to become involved in what he's thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is, is standing right there and, and God says, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham can hear it. Am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And Abraham, he says, is going to be a blessing to all of the nations of the world, including these Canaanites. And he says in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Now, I know there's a, a lot of uh, uh, trying to help us get our mind around God, and so there's a little anthropomorphism that's going on here. But getting back to Sodom and Gomorrah, it, the, that city is so rough, and that city is, is so vicious that God's going, you know, I'm hearing all of these outcries, and I don't, how could that be? I've got to go down and check this out for myself. It's that bad. And Abraham is, is, uh, is, is, is hearing him, and he says, I want to see if, if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. It's sort of as, as if God is saying, you know, I don't know if I should tell you this. But when somebody comes up to you and says, you know, uh, I, I don't know if I should tell you this, what does that usually mean? I'm about to tell you something. But it means something more than that. It means that I trust you enough with this information that I'm about to give you. And it's at this time that the two other beings leave and it's just God and it's just Abraham and the two of them, God and God's friend. And Abraham, who's standing before the Lord, approaches him and asks, will you really sweep away all of these people, all of those Canaanites, even if there are 50 righteous people? You see, Abraham knows all about justice, right? Justice is getting what you deserve. 
He doesn't argue the law. He assumes the law. He doesn't, you know, every time I've gotten a speeding ticket, and believe me, that's been a long time. It used to not be such a long time. <laughs> and I always cried for mercy, but they'd never give it to me. Every time that I got pulled over, they'd say, hey, you know, um, you were going, you know, 65 in, in, a, in a 55. And I go, well, you know, you got me, but here's the deal. 55 is really dumb. <laughs> this stretch of road right here, this has 65 written all over it. I don't know about, you know, turn to the Ellen. Hey, doesn't it say 65 to you too? Ellen stays out of that stuff, right? Abraham assumes the rightness of the law. He doesn't say, I know they're gu- guilty, but the law just doesn't make sense. He, he doesn't, Abraham assumes the law. And at the same time, there is, even though the NIV is a great translation, especially the older NIV, I think it's a great translation, let's not get jammed up with that word spare. It's actually the word in Hebrew, nasah, which means to take away or to bear the guilt. In other words, he says, will you, it's not just spare, but will you not forgive all of these, these, these people that are about to be destroyed if there are 50 righteous people? Notice what Abraham is doing in that conversation. Notice what he's doing. Abraham is reworking the calculus of salvation. He's discovering that there's there's a different kind of trigonometry when it comes to salvation. Abraham is really asking, is it possible for the righteousness of the few to trump the unrighteousness of the many? And God says in verse 26, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare, read, forgive the whole place for their sake. And as God's love of righteousness and the power of righteousness in God's kingdom becomes clearer and clearer and clearer, Abraham gets bolder. And he goes, God, what about, I mean, seriously, okay, we're talking about 50, but what if I'm off by five? How about 45? And God says, hey, 45, I'm in. And he goes, well, suppose I'm only 15 off and there's really only, you know, 30. What about 30? If there are 30 righteous people in all of these cities and all of these people and all of this stuff that's out here in the plain, if we find 30 righteous people, will you spare? Will you forgive? And God says, absolutely, I'm all in. That's fine, 30 people. And then he says, well, and maybe he's beginning to think a little bit about the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes, you know, okay, we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. What about 20? God says, yeah, 20. And then he goes, how about 10? I know I'm only dust. I'm dust. I don't have a, a, the right to talk to you like this. But oh God, 10? And the answer is always yes. That God will forgive the whole plane. That God will forgive those two cities. That those people will be forgiven if there's just 10 righteous people you see what abraham is discovering here about god and what we're discovering about god that that god loves righteousness so much that he can love the few and spare the many but here's where the conversation it ends so abruptly does it not i mean what is it that you expect god you know listen just 10 i mean we're talking about a really bad place but if there are 10 people and God says yes what do we expect the next number to be God if there's only 
one. If there's at least one. But Abraham doesn't go there, does he? That's when God goes this way. And, and, I, and I don't know, you know, this is speculation on my part, but maybe what happens here is that, is that Abraham begins to think about what it is that he's really asking and what it means to be righteous. And maybe the only person that he can think of is Lot. And even though Lot believes in God and, 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 and you know, at, at some level is trying to be a God person, he's not righteous like that. But you see what's happening, right? We think that, that the evil goes only one direction when what Abraham and God are showing us is that the righteousness goes the other. And it's also a beginning hint in the, in the Old Testament that there is going to be one that comes. There's going to be one that comes. And that brings us to the grace getting what we don't deserve. Abraham's priesthood failed, did it not? You know, his, his interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, it failed. I mean, in the end, Sodom and Gomorrah are wiped off of the face of the earth, and nobody knows even exactly where they are to this day. So complete was that destruction because of the viciousness and the profound evil that was just just wrecking human beings in that area. But it's in this story that we begin to have a hint, that we begin to receive a hint, that there is going to be one righteous human whose righteousness is so profound and so great and so beautiful to God that God is willing to accept His righteousness on behalf of the many unrighteous. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for, say it with me, all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made sad, righteous. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is just an awful story. I mean, it's reminiscent of what was going on in the world at that time when, when only... Only Noah was righteous. And what God is seeing in terms of man's inhumanity, man and the evil and, and the, the rejection of God and rebellion against God and all of that, and all of it, you know, the, just, just heaped up and heaped up and heaped up and ramped up as time goes on, that God is grieved in his heart that he even put man on the earth. And he destroyed it and he started again. And now he's working through Abraham and we get to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same kind of a deal. What is it going to take to overcome the unrighteousness of the many. And it's faith in the one perfect, without blemish, righteous man whom we call the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Who came and became like us, a human being, and lived among all of the temptations and among all of the, 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 the viciousness of this world and was even... And, and, was, and was even 
the victim of our viciousness. Lived a perfect life, the most sensitive man who ever lived, and because he was the most sensitive man who ever lived, the more it pained and the more that it hurt him in his suffering. But in his righteousness and in his love, he becomes the way for us to find our way out of that kind of a life where there is no, that takes us to a place where there is no hope that God will ever come and rescue us. But to take us to that place where we are forever and ever and ever in the abiding presence of God. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front, our spiritual leaders of our church, and we want to offer an invitation. This is an invitation to come out of, of, of that life that leads to destruction and depend on the righteousness of that one man, Jesus of Nazareth, who died and was buried and was resurrected to a newness of life, the first fruits, the promise of more to come, that when we participate in his death, burial, and resurrection, in baptism, and our sins are washed away, that, we, that God puts his righteousness on us so that we can find ourselves, not just in all of eternity, but beginning this very day, enjoying and, and experiencing all the blessings of his righteousness. If that describes you this morning, then come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God together. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word.